0: I just had to learn for myself and accept the fact that I can impact patient care without actually touching the patient. From Spa Damron Tenney, it's the Prosperous Doc Podcast. Real stories, real inspiration, real growth. A show for doctors who are ready to improve their overall wellness in every aspect of life. Now here's your host, Shane Tenney.
1: Today, I'm here with Dr. Janelle White. Dr. White is a pediatrician with Atrium Healthcare in Charlotte, North Carolina, one of the largest employers in the area and one of the largest healthcare systems in the country. And Dr. White has a story that I think many of you will connect with. And it's a story that involves starting in clinical medicine, but feeling stirred and called and drawn into a role that can facilitate broader systemic change. She has a story that involves an awareness and a a growing personal connection with community health and some of those issues. And so I want to give her a chance to tell you a little bit about her journey. In addition to being a pediatrician, she is the system medical director for community health for Atrium. She's also on the board of Carolina's Physicians Alliance. Dr. White, thanks so much for being with us today.
0: Well, thank you for this opportunity to join the podcast and to discuss physician leadership and to also discuss health equity. Very excited and honored to be here. So thank you for your time.
1: For sure. I find it useful often just to kind of start to rewind a little bit, start at the beginning. Can you just start giving us a little bit of your background and kind of what drew you into medicine and into pediatrics at the outset?
0: Absolutely. So um, I grew up in, in Miami, Florida, and it was one of those things growing up sort of through elementary, middle school, you get asked the question what do you want to be when you grow up. And I, I really, you know, honestly, just I didn't know. I love learning and I'm still a lifelong learner, but I I sort of didn't have that answer of what is it that you want to do when you grow up. When I was in high school, um, I have an older brother and he was actually involved in in a hit and run accident. So it was pretty severe and he ended up in the trauma center in Miami. So, you know, he again sustained um, very severe life-threatening injuries. So, obviously, my family and I were there at the trauma center day in and day out watching him and and watching his recovery. And that is what really motivated me. And that was a life changing experience for me, you know, to see how those uh, physicians and not just the physicians, the entire care team, how they honestly saved my brother's life and revived him. So. That, again, spurred my interest in medicine. And again, I just thought that those physicians, they were miracle workers. It it was just amazing to me what they did. So that sort of started my path um, down this road to uh, wanting to be a physician.
1: And I think that path took you to the University of Florida and then ultimately to Charlotte, where you did your residency. Where in that journey did you decide pediatrics was the angle for you?
0: Another thing uh, that I think was formative for me Is, you know, once I decided I wanted to be a doctor, I I wasn't quite sure which specialty that I wanted to focus on. So as a high school student, the church that I attended, one of my church members was an office manager of a pediatric clinic in Miami, in Miami Shores, Dr. Gina Morgan Smith. And she actually allowed me as a high school student to come to her office periodically and just shadow her and see what she did day in of a doctor, a physician. I loved it. You know, it it, it was just great to see what she did, the interaction that she had with her patients, the care that she took of them. And also, you could just tell that the families were very grateful for the care that she provided, the parents and also the children that she interacted with. So that sparked my interest um, in pediatrics. But I I didn't want to sort of just focus there. As all of us as providers in medical school, you have the opportunity to sort of go through all of your different specialties during your clinical rotations and just sort of get a glimpse into. What the different specialties entail. So, you know, I, I tried to keep an open mind as I went through all of those. And when I got on my pediatric rotations, it it really it just felt right and it felt like home. I guess just came full circle um, to where my initial interest was was in the field of pediatrics.
1: Yeah, I'm going to try it all out, but I knew I was going to like this the best. So.
0: Right. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: so you started as a pediatrician, I think, 15 years ago or so, uh, seeing yeah. 30, 40 kids a day. Yep. And kind of running through that. And as you got deeper into, into just the, the work of medicine and the work of being a doctor and seeing kids, I think you started to get invited to participate in conversations kind of at the, the planning level or kind of in the administrative level. Talk a little bit about what that was like and then kind of how the, I think your own experience realizing kind of the other side of medicine or, or the, the other angles that, that take place.
0: Absolutely. You know, it's, it's one of those things, you know, the first several years, as you alluded to, you know, when I joined my practice, I joined as a full-time pediatrician. So I've, I was seeing patients four and a half days a week. And I just thought that that's what I was going to do. Really did not have any other aspirations at that time. And again, I was I was just happy, you know, to be a pediatrician. It's a, it's a field that I love. When I first started my career, recently married, started in a family. So that's sort of where my focus was and just sort of settling into my role, growing my practice, growing my patient panel, and just providing excellent care. So again, that's really, that's what I thought I was going to do. And that was my focus. Over the years, you sort of participate on committees or, you know, quality improvement projects, small things like that. That's sort of how I started to get a bit of a glimpse into the other side, physician leadership. And, and as you practice, medicine and in your patients, you start to sort of see those gaps and hmm, this could probably be better or, you know, I could, you know, these sort of initiatives could be put in place to have better outcomes. So again, you just sort of start to see very just small glimpses of it and it just sort of piques your attention. But taking on an active leadership role, as you mentioned, I, I was sort of just tapped and invited to serve as a medical director of my practice. And, and it sort of just organically just grew and led to progressive increasing leadership responsibilities and roles at Atrium.
1: Well, you say you were tapped, but in here also is a demeanor that is observed. That's the reason you get tapped. I mean, you, had, you have an interest and a proclivity for thinking strategically and thinking fairly and balancing various interests and things like that. So I, I know you, you bring that Nate skill to the table I'm guessing, was there a time though as you were growing in, I'll say, more board meetings, and you're surrounded by the executives and the administrators and the policymakers, and, and you're the doctor and the voice of the providers, but at the same time, you feel a little mismatched or a little outgunned and maybe out over your skis?
0: Absolutely. You know, I think that that's something that as physician leaders, one of those things that we, have to learn to navigate. So, you know, what I can say and to back up a little bit is as you continue to expand your leadership roles, you you do realize, you know, that it is important to have that voice of the leadership, you know, but as a physician and for myself personally, as I took on these progressive leadership roles, I sort of had to get over the limiting belief that if I'm not performing direct patient care, I'm not using my talents as a clinician to Improve the lives of patients. You know, I, I think that that's something that is easy to get caught up on as a physician. And I just had to learn for myself and accept the fact that I can impact patient care without actually touching the patient. And, you know, transitioning to the physician leadership, it sort of allowed me to be able to do that and to have that sort of wider perspective and also a wider impact on, on affecting patients. So, the lives of patients in a positive manner. So for me, therein lies some of the value proposition. As a direct patient care, it's that one-on-one, you're affecting the patient whom you have in front of you or the you know thousand or so that's on your panel. But as in, in a leadership role, you actually have the opportunity to affect the lives of potentially tens of thousands. And there were a few uh, just sort of key moments that sort of drilled that home for me.
1: What's one of the moments that are coming to your mind?
0: Yeah, and I, I can actually share one. I was involved in. I remember the day. You know, it was it was a Mecklenburg County Healthy Weight Healthy Child Initiative brunch, and through that, you know, that was sort of their annual big meeting where they sort of highlighted and shared some of the initiatives that a lot of our multi-sector organizations in the county and surrounding area were doing to combat a pediatric obesity, childhood obesity, and at that time when it was time to highlight the work that Atrium Health was leading around childhood obesity, they highlighted um, some of the work that a committee that I was leading at that time did. And and I just remember there was a PowerPoint presentation and the slide that was presented showed that the work that our small committee, you know, did actually touched the lives of over 80,000 patients that year. And and to me, that was just mind-blowing. And that's honestly when that light bulb moment, that that's when it went off for me. And, and that's when I said, this is it. And this is where I have an opportunity again to position myself and to have that sort of perspective and the opportunity to influence systemic change and change on a greater level to improve care of patients.
1: It's an interesting paradigm shift that You're describing, I hadn't thought about before, but if I'm kind of tracking with you, it's almost that inflection point where you go from, and you have to be willing to go from having your constituency and primary focus be your thousand patients on your panel Mm -hmm. to your constituency being the thousand doctors in the system. That's right. Whose processes and systems and protocols are going to be impacted by your work, which is going to affect their thousand patient panels. Mm -hmm. Is that, am I tracking with you?
0: You are, and you know that's the thing as as a physician leader, another thing that we sort of have to that I had to get over personally, and I think that being a physician involved in direct patient care, it allows me to maintain that perspective, you know that physicians in particular are feeling a loss of control and autonomy in the systems within which we work, you know, and there are many reasons for this. It feels like there's more oversight there's a that electronic medical record as you mentioned, where we a lot of times spend more time charting than we do, you know, actually interacting with the patient, declining reimbursement, you know, so the purse strings are tightening and and that causes us us to have to be more efficient with our resources and resources include our time. Resources include our support staff and things like that. So, you know, as a physician with over 15 years of direct patient care, when I'm in those board meetings and and in those rooms with our um, administrative leaders, I can speak up on behalf of practicing physicians. And I think that that is an honor and a privilege. It certainly does put you in a, a sort of an uncomfortable position at times because you're sort of walking that fine line and, and you're sort of there in the middle.
1: But I know from your story, it wasn't, this just hasn't, this administrative role that you have embraced. I mean, it isn't just one that you've grown and evolved into. There was a decision or point where you decided, yeah, this is, this is the where I feel called to make change. And, and you were accepted into Harvard's Master's of Health Administration program and, and doubled down on your education.
0: And where that came from, again, is, you know, sort of, I felt as a physician leader prior to getting the degree, I could speak up on, the ha- on behalf of the practicing physicians based on my experience. But it's one of those things, as I continue to grow in my leadership roles and responsibilities, you sort of take a look at your CV and you sort of look and where where are the gaps, you know, what's missing and where can I make myself stronger and how can I make sure that I'm speaking the language, you know, of, of the individuals with whom I'm in this room and, and making these decisions, you know, and and so that is what sort of led me to pursuing the the master's degree. I've always been a lifelong learner, you know, and and I never shy away. I'm not one to shy away From opportunities to grow and opportunities to learn. So again, it is one of those things. As I reflect back, it's funny how at the beginning of my career, physician leadership was just not on my radar. But you know, as I reflect back, I've always been in a leadership role in some capacity. So in high school, president of my class, uh, you know, senior class involved in several activities, extracurricular activities in college. You know, I was college of our uh, minority association of pre-health students, several other committees and organizations in medical school, you know, president of the student national medical association. So again, but those were all sort of just more narrow focused interest healthcare. So again, sort of making that paradigm shift to from an only clinical perspective to actually more of an administrative strategy, operations management, finance, you know, that's sort of where that paradigm shift occurs. And and again, it's one of those things as a physician leader, you want to make sure that you are speaking the language and then also able to translate that back to your physician colleagues.
1: And so on the continuum of, you know, when you make a big change in life, I'm just, thinking with you through the experience you're describing, there's a continuum, I think, or maybe it's an X, Y axis of exciting and scary. That's right. Things kind of, you know, ebb and flow with each other. And so as you begin to, I guess, mentally think, hmm, I think my impact is going to be essentially in the the boardroom, in the conference room, and not in the exam room. I know that in some ways it's swimming upstream. And there may be some folks listening to this like, you sold out. Uh, you <laughs> gave in to the bureaucrats was that decision one that felt just on my little mental graph of exciting and scary was mm-hmm. it exciting and you just felt called and drawn to it because that's how you're wired or or yeah. did it feel scary and like a little bit of a leap of faith or that sort of thing
0: I really think that it's a combination of both you know okay. so again as i mentioned i'm not one to shy away from growth and opportunity but again there is a part you know i think as a physician where you you may, you know initially feel like you're you're selling out you know and, and you're sort of Moving over to the other side. again, that is something I think as a physician, we can sometimes maybe broaden our perspective and understand that we can have a positive impact with actually touching the patient. And as a leader, I've learned that I value transparency, integrity, and ownership, you know, and I try to bring all of those traits with me and all of my interactions, especially when you are working with physicians and administrators, and especially, when you, as you mentioned, could potentially be weighing in and also communicating certain initiatives that may not be popular. And that could potentially totally change the workflow of a physician's day, of their OR schedule, how they sort of manage patients on the floor. That's a big burden to, to bear, you know. So again, it's one of those things over time, you, you sort of just develop those skills. And I've always found that communication is key. And again, just in this role, you have to be able to sort of translate and speak the language on both sides.
1: Yeah, well, you're in a unique position to do this. I want to take a quick break, and then when we come back, I want to talk about what you referenced earlier about your awareness and affinity for community health. And then I know you've got your own story that you want to share as well. So we'll be right back after this. Summertime comes with a lot of change for those of you who are finishing your residency or fellowship programs and heading into private practice. Whether you're going to be joining a hospital system or a medical group or becoming an associate with a dental practice, you know that there are a ton of financial decisions facing you, ranging from things like disability insurance, the right type, how much, questions about a home mortgage or how to finance it and what size house to purchase. Often there's questions around budgeting and taxes, and definitely student loans, whether to go public service loan forgiveness or refinance them. All of these questions are addressed and more in the free Residents and Fellows Survival Guide that you can download in the show notes below or directly from sdtplanning.com under the Free Guides section. With this free guide written specifically for residents and fellows as they go through the transition phase, you'll be able to answer really important questions that will help you lay a solid foundation as you start this next journey of your career. If it's helpful for you, download it today. If you know someone who's finishing training, make sure to pass along this tip to them. You can click in the show notes below and download it or navigate directly to sdtplanning.com and navigate to free guides. And best of all, you'll have a resource in case you need future advice that would be helpful for you or your family. so we're here with Dr. Janelle White talking about her journey from clinical medicine into administrative medicine. Dr. White, I know that that role and just the longer you're in medicine, you've been become more and more aware of just community health issues and high-risk populations and those sorts of things. I maybe level set for for me at least. What is community health? How should we think about that?
0: So, community health for me is really it is just sort of the definition of caring for the population more from a population health standpoint and not necessarily the individual patient level, community health also involves caring for the the health and well-being of the community as a whole. And with community health, we tend to focus more on our vulnerable and marginalized uh, populations. And it also, the third leg of that is with community health, you pay attention to the factors that are outside of the walls of the hospital setting, you know, or your the four walls of your clinic. So that's what's called our social determinants of health.
1: In our society right now, where in many ways, there's so much individualized rights and individualized focus, and I'm even thinking we're recording this, uh, hopefully in the third quarter of the COVID pandemic or fourth quarter of the COVID pandemic, when the vaccine topic is so big and I guess, help elucidate a little bit. What is the value of community health on society as a whole? And what would you say to folks who are like, look, that's somebody else's problem. My job is to take care of me.
0: That's right. You know, and, and that that's, that's understandable. Um, I, you know, can see from a certain vantage point, but the pandemic has just laid bare the urgency to pay more attention to health equity. Again, the, just the disparities in the morbidity and mortality from the pandemic. We've always known, you know, that there are disparities there, but, but the pandemic just sort of laid bare that reality, and it's real, and, and it's something that, that has to be addressed. Again, as clinicians, we tend to focus more on clinical care, but I think one of several things that the pandemic has shown for us is that social determinants of health can have a greater effect on health outcomes more than the clinical care that we provide. You know, so I can give you an example as, as physicians, providers. I think we are all very familiar with quality metrics. We're sort of monitored on you know how are we providing quality care? Are we seeing measurable improvement in the patients that we're taking care of? and there are sometimes certain patients where, despite what we do clinically, the medication that we prescribe, the procedure that we perform, they're readmitted, or you know the hemoglobin a one c is continuing to climb despite the time and the care that you took with them so that is the missing piece. That that's the missing piece, and that sort of is where the realization comes. And studies have shown that you know only twenty percent of a, of a person's health and well being is impacted by clinical care. So that means there's a huge other piece of that pie that is beyond our control as clinicians. That's about eighty percent of that. So other factors include you know studies have shown that about forty percent of an individual's Health and well-being is impacted by socioeconomic factors. 30% is impacted by health behaviors and 10% is physical em- environment. So again, when the question becomes, what does that have to do with me? If you are looking at this uh, solely as a physician and provider, I think that that may help explain, you know, some of the what does that have to do with me is when you are seeing that despite what you're doing clinically, your patient is not getting better. And your quality metrics are, are not improving. So, you know, again, I think that that's sort of just another paradigm shift is that we sort of sometimes have to broaden our focus and look beyond the walls of our hospitals and clinics to understand the multiple other factors that impact health and well being and not necessarily, I think, label someone as a non compliant patient.
1: And so, as, as you have moved into leadership, and been able to think broader than just the patient in front of you in the clinic. What are some of the things that that you and the healthcare system are seeing and are beginning to put energy into to really impact the community health outside of just the clinic?
0: So happy, you know, to share that our community and social impact division strategy includes several different initiatives. I'll share a few. For example, we are devising a strategy to screen all of our patients for social determinants of health and also implementing support systems and resources to actually connect the patients to the community resources who have identified needs. And, and I think that that's important because, again, as, as providers and physicians, we may not feel empowered to do anything about it. There's a hesitancy, I'm sure. You may know that there are factors there, but as a physician, what can I do about that? So, mm-hmm. again, that is recognized and understood so that's sort of part of our division's uh, work and our strategy so again as a clinician i can lend that voice and clinical thought leadership to that hey this is what we're seeing i'm in the trenches too and i'm i'm in direct patient care this is what we're seeing but this is the bandwidth that we as providers have you know mm-hmm. so we need some help and we need support so that's something that you know our division is working on
1: you have incident by in that example specific additional screening questions that either the nurse or the physician are asking and though not just asking and then and then not knowing what to do with it asking and helping to provide them with the social network or the other services or departments or organizations that maybe we can connect that patient with or their family with or things like that is that kind of what you're describing
0: that is absolutely correct and we wanted to make sure that we're doing this in the correct order you know sometimes when we push through initiatives. We we sort of identify the gap and the need. So we sort of go to screening, but then where's the support system? So yes, right. that, that's sort of what we're doing is we have actually built the support system and onboarding community health workers, referral navigators, so that when the clinical team screens the patients for these social determinants of health, there is a sort of warm handoff, you know, and someone that can connect the patient with those wraparound services.
1: What's an example of the sort of question that the sort of social determinant that would show up in, in that sort of screening and where the handoff would be?
0: A very common one that we have identified, especially through the pandemic, is food insecurity. You know, so mm-hmm. there are questions around, do you have enough food, you know, to um, last the next 48 hours? Over the past, you know, 30 days, have you actually run out of food? Or, or do you think that you're going to actually run out of food? So food insecurity is a big one, you know, that we've been able to have a a collaboration with entities here in Charlotte, community-based organizations, where we identify someone as food insecure, and we can immediately connect them to a resource where they may um, receive the help that they need.
1: Right. That's a great example that, again, just doesn't occur to those of us who aren't in that risk population. Mm -hmm. But it's so much more profound. Having a belly that's full is way more impactful than Oh, by the way, I need you to make sure and take these vitamins.
0: That's right, yeah, you know, the mess off hierarchy of needs. you know it's one of those things if if I need to pay my rent or if I need food, my money's going to go there, not and not the prescription you know that that you prescribe for me because I just I can't. So, again, as you mentioned, um it's, it's just sort of keeping those sort of just factors, you know, on our radar as as clinicians.
1: Now, I know from just our past conversations and things. There was a time in the last couple of years where, in your story, you kind of had a, a, a rude awakening, the phrase that comes to mind and, and in some ways not even the the right phrase of of just your own vulnerability and things. Could you share a little bit about that?
0: I'm very happy to. you know again, as I mentioned, in my sort of committee and leadership roles, I've always for the most part chosen to lend my voice and talents to initiatives that focus on vulnerable populations and also historically marginalized, it was just a professional interest for me. And also it was somewhat personal from stories that my father shared with me. He grew up in, in middle Georgia. Um, he was born in 1939, so that might provide a little bit of context. But he would share the story with me of how he could not attend the quote-unquote good school, you know, in his small town because he was poor and and because of his race. So that always stuck with me. And again, it's always been an interest of me as something that I cared about, but it became more real, I think for me, you know, personally in 2018, when I became a widowed single mother, lost my husband suddenly and unexpectedly, you know, And, and it's one of those things where it hit home for me that how someone can potentially be placed into a vulnerable situation that they never anticipated, never expected, and certainly did not ask for.
1: You're absolutely right. It makes you grateful for your own level of preparedness, but also I think you're describing a freshly empathetic for those that don't have the connections, let alone the financial connections, but just the relational connections to be able to provide stability and support in times like that. Absolutely. What do you see as, the, as maybe to kind of bring us uh, across the finish line here, what do you see as the biggest opportunity in medicine right now, you know, over the next couple of years, particularly uh, maybe based on what we've learned and seen coming out of COVID?
0: I would say the big, the, a few biggest opportunities, you know, so I would like to touch on the two that we are sort of focusing on for this particular conversation. So the one is is physician leadership, and then second, um, health equity and community health. So to first touch on physician leaderships for us as physicians, whether you are in a formal leadership position or not, we all have the opportunity to lead from where we are. We all have that opportunity to lend our voice to ensuring the well-being of our patients and also lending our voice to just sort of making sure that we understand that even administrators, you know, they they have a, a patient's well being in mind, and understanding that you know we we can assume positive intent, and understand that uh, strategy and finance and operations management that that's very important, you know, for us to remain competitive and to remain viable as a healthcare system, you know. So I think that as physicians, there is ample opportunity for us to lead from where we are and and to take on leadership. Whether it's is in a formal role or again just in your day to day interactions as patient care, regarding community health, you know a lot of people have asked, you know, what do you want to do with this degree or sort of what is your goal? That has obviously changed. Initially, it was just to you know provide excellent and quality care to the the patients that I care for. But for me, really my goal and where I think our greatest uh, opportunity as healthcare in general is to provide the same quality of healthcare to all and i think that that is especially something that the pandemic has shown is that if the least of us are not receiving quality healthcare then again the playing field is not level and it can have ramifications obviously from a healthcare standpoint from a moral standpoint you know to see a particular population um, of people just disproportionately impacted by a pandemic So again, I think that that's something where we have the biggest opportunity is to apply a health equity lens to all of the work that we're doing.
1: Dr. White, as you've spent the last decade kind of growing in the number of meetings you attend, board meetings, conference meetings, planning meetings, what's one of the biggest tips that you've learned or aha moments you've had as you've sat in meetings with executives and MBAs and planners?
0: What I would say is, One of the many lessons that I've learned, you know, is that as a clinical and a physician leader with, you know, over 15 years of clinical experience, it is important for me to speak up on behalf of practicing physicians, you know, and and to sometimes level set when we're having these conversations and explain, you know, why there's sometimes pushback from physicians, you know, when new initiatives are rolled out. And, you know, because sometimes it's not out of, I don't want to do it, but sometimes it's just self-preservation. You know, there there are times when initiatives may look nice and clean on a spreadsheet, but they're difficult to execute in a busy clinic or in the OR or on on the, you know, on the unit. It's just sometimes not possible to do that because patients are human, patients are complex. Everything that we do is not transactional. You know, as physicians, there is an art to what we do. And I think that sometimes that may get lost. And I, I wouldn't say that intentionally, that's what happens, but sometimes the perspective is not there. So through my past 10 ish or so years of serving as a physician leader, that's one of the the most important lessons that I've learned and, and something that I continue to stick to.
1: I'm thinking of those hypothetical meetings where there was a, a report showing that the EHR system is going to significantly save you time and you can keep seeing 40 patients. And That's it takes right. somebody with guts to say, excuse me, I don't think it's going to work
0: that way. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <That's
1: right. laughs> yeah. One final question, or kind of we're wrapping up here. You know, you listen to a story and, and, and for all of us, we, we come so far in life. And, and you can look now at the last 15 years and you can see that you're, you know, you've climbed a mountain. And from the outside, folks can listen and say, wow, you know, you've grown from seeing little kids all day, to sitting in boardrooms, to setting policy, to, you know, looking on the wall at the Harvard degree that you've worked so hard for. But I know in the midst of that journey, the days aren't always bright and sunny. Was there a time when you have just felt overwhelmed or scared or that sort of thing?
0: Absolutely. There have been, you know, many times, and again, it is sort of as, you know, we just mentioned, just when you're having those difficult conversations, When you are explaining, you know, to individuals who may not have that clinical background or knowledge—again, not unintentionally—but when you're explaining that what's on this spreadsheet is just not going to be able, it's just not possible to execute that. So those are those uncomfortable moments. But a time for me that particularly sticks out is in 2018 when I suddenly uh, became a widowed single mother. That was the time when I, I I had been enrolled in my master's program for about a month. And that was a point in the decision making is what am I going to do? You know, do I continue to move forward? Can I do this? You know, as I'm grieving, as I'm caring for my son, as I'm still working full time and fulfilling my my clinical duties. And, you know, there are times when you're learning finance and you're looking at uh, spreadsheets and, and putting in formulas into ledgers. And you get to the point to, wh- why am I doing this? You know, wh- why am I doing this? What am I accomplishing here? If you share with colleagues that you're getting a master's degree, you know, sometimes there's a, well, what are you going to do with that? Or, you know, you're moving over to the other side. So again, there are sometimes external and internal battles that we deal with when we're along this journey. And again, limiting beliefs that may pop up in our in our minds. So again, I always sort of center myself and I am reminded of why I became a physician, and that's to care for patients and improve their health and well-being. And I can do that through direct patient care, and I can also do that through this degree. And again, just keeping that perspective on my radar that this will Give me the opportunity to impact the health and well being in patients on a larger scale is one of the guiding principles and the North Star that was able to allow me to continue down this path.
1: Mm -hmm. That's great. You're in a great role, and it's a pleasure to hear your passion and your vision and to know that there are folks with your skill set taking the wheel of our healthcare system. I'm excited for. What is taking place. I'm excited for what our country is learning as a result of COVID and as a result of a renewed awareness around health equity and community health issues. And uh, Dr. White, thanks so much for being with us today.
0: Thank you for the opportunity.
1: Thank you for joining us for another riveting episode of the Prosper Stock Podcast. We greatly appreciate the time you give us, whether you're working out or driving or wherever you are listening to us. Welcome your feedback on iTunes or Google Play. Uh, welcome your reviews. Uh, definitely subscribe. You'll find out about our episodes coming out every other Monday. And as always, this doesn't have to be a distant conversation. You're welcome to email me directly, Shane at White Coat Well. And I welcome your comments or suggestions. If you have guests or topics that you think we ought to put on the show, I'd love to hear about them. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you back here next time.
0: This episode of the Prosperous Doc Podcast is over, but you're not alone on your journey. Spa Dameron has been helping physicians and dentists prosper through financial planning for over 60 years. To connect with us, visit sdtplanning.com today and take your financial wellness to new levels. Join us on the next episode of the Prosperous Doc
1: Podcast.